Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Welcome, welcome. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast, episode number 291. Rich Kimball here with you from our Zone Radio studios. We remind you we're brought to you every week by Renewal by Anderson, the better way to a better window. Offering free in-home consultation and buy one, get one 40% off with an additional $250 off your entire project. Call 207-275-6622 or visit RenewalByAnderson.com. Two fine guests on the podcast this week, a little bit later on, we'll hop in the time machine and look back at uh, the history of rock concerts in Southern Maine from the dawn of rock and roll up until the mid-1970s. We'll talk with author Ford Reiki about his new book a long, long time ago. Up first this afternoon, though, he's one of our favorites on both our radio show and the podcast, actor, humanitarian, producer, the always entertaining and thoughtful Mike Farrell joining us here on Downtown. I wanted to talk, first of all, about the wonderful special uh, that uh, aired, I guess it was two weeks ago tonight, New Year's Day, uh, on Fox, the MASH reunion. I, I think you were one of the executive producers. Wh what a what a wonderful trip back that was uh, with all of you and then the archival interviews. It, it brought back so many great memories. Wasn't it terrific? I was, uh, no, I was a... Uh barely a consultant on it um but it was a terrific job done by uh john uh, scheinfeld and um it had been it had been the dream of bert metcalf who was who john and bert were very close friends and it had been a long time dream of theirs to do this thing and unfortunately bert passed uh, uh last year but uh, john was able to just find a way to get it on the air and I was so thrilled with it. I was just, I, I watched it and laughed and cried <laughs> and just felt uh, lucky again to be have been part of that show. And we've talked with you countless times about MASH through the years, but it just speaks volumes that a show that has now been off the air in its initial run for 40 years uh, would still draw people to it because this is a show that's always in syndication and keeps adding new generations of fans. It is amazing, I have to say. I, I hear, I used to hear from people who say, uh, I, I, uh, I watched this show with my father or with my grandfather. <laughs> now, now they say, I watched this show with my grandson or, <laughs> or my son. So the same same generations are, are continuing to follow and the new generations are coming along. Yeah, and, and I think everybody, whatever generation they're a part of, everybody appreciates the talent that went into the show, uh, the writing, the acting, the directing, all of that. But also, I think, are, are genuinely moved all these years later by the fact that uh, the cast members and, and others associated with the show have remained so close. that That's not anything that you guys have to uh, have to fake for a special. It's a very real thing. <laughs> it, it very much is. It, it was, you know, it's something of a, of a cliche to call a show that works together or the cast works together for a long time, a family, but ours really became a family. We, uh, we we you know loved each other doing the show loved each other and, and and loved the material and loved the fact that the audience was reacting to it the way it was. Well, and, and we, we had, stayed that 
we stayed that way uh, till till today. And, and um, unfortunately, we've lost a significant number of our of our family, but that's what happens over time. We had so much fun uh, last year putting together a 50th anniversary tribute to the show, and it, it was great uh, having you on, of course, and Loretta uh, and, and Jamie. Um, but it was also uh, so great to talk with people like like G.W. Bailey, uh, Lynn Stewart, yep. uh, who appeared on a few episodes, and, and even the people who were on a handful of episodes. Uh, Jeff Maxwell, who was there for several seasons as a Chef right. Igor, uh, the show, even for them, had such a profound impact. Oh, it does. <clears throat> Continuous. Jeff, you know, now runs a website uh, called MASH Matters, Jeff and a partner. And they do, they, they have an ongoing relationship with the audience. Uh, and there's another guy out there who has shows that are just, all they talk about is MASH. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. It's on, on the web. Yeah, we, we've had Jeff on a couple of times. We found out uh, that Jeff's uh, brother-in-law actually lives here uh, in Bangor, Maine. So we've got a nice connection with him and, and love the podcast as well. I, I wanted to ask you about another show that, that I loved, and uh, we talked about it with you in the past. Providence was such a wonderful show. Uh, do you know why that's not streaming anywhere? You know, I've never understood that. We did five years of uh, a really nice show. I quite agree with you. I thought Providence was a lovely show. It was, you know, it took me 16 years from the end of MASH to agree to go back into series television, and it was because the script was so good. Um, and I have no understanding of why that show hasn't been rerun significantly, because it really, uh, it really was smart and thoughtful and dealt with uh, 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 some some important issues as well. Um, but it was mostly, you know, a show that families could enjoy. I thought of you, uh, I think it was about a week and a half ago, I was just uh, channel surfing one night and saw that a movie that I had not seen, I think since it first came out, was going to be on Turner Classic Movies. And it was it was so great to go back and revisit a film that you were a big part of, Dominic and Eugene. Oh, boy. That is one of... You know, other than MASH, that's probably the, the highlight of my career, um, doing that show. I, it was, it was, it was, uh, it's kind of a, it took 15 years to get it, <laughs> to get it made, um, from inception when I first learned about the story and figured out how to do it. Um, and I was so proud of it. I thought Ray Liotta, Tom Hulse, and Jamie Lee Curtis, David Strathairn, wonderful people, great actors, um, just made that picture sing. And then the studio kind of dumped it on us and didn't really promote the uh, uh, promote the release of the picture as they should have. And uh, as a result, it, it didn't really find much of an audience. And I was I'm very sad about that. But I was thrilled that uh, that Ben uh, Mankiewicz uh, did it on. Uh, on TCM because uh, uh, at least at least now people have seen significant numbers of people have seen it. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was so great because I again I don't think I had seen it uh, since it first came out. So I um, I had a little time over the holidays and I went back and and reread your wonderful memoir. Just call me Mike, and uh, it, oh, it's yeah. it's so well written and it's it's such an honest uh, story of of everything you have done in your life and your family. 
and your background. And as somebody who works uh, with young people in education, I-, I wanted to ask you about the role that Marvin Bass played and when you were a young man. Oh, gee. Marv uh, t- took a bunch of kids who were running around not knowing what to do with themselves and, you know, potentially getting in trouble, although they're really we weren't troublemakers. But we were kind of clowning around at this local park and uh, just young kids looking for some reason to um, (laughs) spend our energies. And this fellow was a coach at the park, um, and he stopped us and he said, listen, I think you guys ought to get organized into a club. And it was... uh, it was of our first experience with sort of organization and paying dues and having uh, responsibilities. And he was, um, he really took a bunch of kids who could have gotten into trouble, I'm sure, although we weren't really bad kids. But he, he, he framed us into, into a, a, a relationship that taught us just incredible things about organization and caring for one another and dealing with things and being straightforward and being honest and working in the community. And it was the, uh, it was really a, uh, a, 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 an extraordinary hallmark in my life, knowing Marv and, and we stayed friends um, even as we grew up through junior high school and high school. Um, and um, some of the kids went off to college But after we graduated from high school, we made a pact, as Marv suggested we do, um, to at least get together once a year and have a a reunion dinner. And we have done that now for 60 plus, Mm -hmm. 60 plus to 65 years. And obviously, sadly, the the number um, um, has... uh, lessened over time but we still get together and we still tell stories and we still check in on each other and uh, it has formed a kind of um, meaningful relationship to all of us Um, um, and then we took care of Marv in his older age and was there when he passed and um, I, I owe that man I can't tell you what I uh, what I owe him, but it, it is uh, his his effect on my life was phenomenal. Well, and and it reminded me as a teacher that we we don't know what's going on in the lives of young people until we ask them, and and how important it is to understand that everybody's got different circumstances, and we may not know what's going on. But open that dialogue, and then the importance of of giving young people a significant adult in their life. Who cares about them? Yes, indeed, all of that, <clears throat> and, and and you know, we we did think Marv Marv sat us in in a room once a month. He said, um, you, "We take turns. One per, uh, one of the members of the club sits in the room in a, in a chair in the middle of the room, and everybody goes around the room, offering some sort of constructive criticism or constructive comment, and that was." That was hard for a lot of mm. people. You didn't know how to things like that. <laughs> but but he said, no, nobody gets a pass. You get to say, you know, if so-and-so's got this kind of an issue or you want to point something out, 
And, you know, just think of it in, in, as helping your friend in a loving way. And it was uh, it was really an eye opening and, and, and in many ways, I think, heart opening experience for, you know, young guys, um, 10, 11, 12. And yeah, when we started and um, I, I can't tell you how many, you know, we, we formed, we had a club that went, we played football and basketball and baseball and all those games together. And we got into a Y league. We did, uh, we went together to different, uh, the group because of um, district lines. We were split up and some guys went to one school and some guys went to another, but we maintained our relationship. So it was, um, it was a, really a phenomenally uh, or a helpful experience for young kids growing up. We're talking with Mike Farrell here on downtown. Uh, your fellow downtown Hall of Famer, the historian Heather Cox Richardson, has talked with us a number of times here on the show about uh, uh, what happened some 40 plus years ago when Jerry Falwell and what became known as the moral majority aligned themselves with the Republican Party and particularly the Reagan administration. And uh, I was recalling when I reread your book, the work that you did, along with Martin Sheen, to stop uh, what I think you called at the time the Christianization of America. Yeah, uh, many of us um, got very worried about this notion. I mean, I'm I'm not (laughs) anti-Christian. I was raised in the church, but but um, the idea that we are a nation that is not um, um, uh, allied with a particular faith belief system, we are a nation wherein everybody's belief system is accepted and, and um, honored. And it's been, for, from the early days, it's been an important, uh, important thing to me, but it, Ever more so today, there's a there's a really strong, very powerful movement trying to declare America as a Christian nation. And although we certainly are a nation where the most, uh, probably the most popular faith is Christianity, that's fine. And nobody has any problem with that. But we are we're not a nation that requires people to be Christians, as some sta- nation states do. Uh, and uh, yeah, Marty and I and many others uh, worked in that area. We we got together out and fought a lot of things: uh, civil rights, human rights, anti-war, working the <laughs> working the streets, traveling the world, uh, doing the things that I think uh, that we as American citizens are fortunate enough to have the opportunity and the background and the basis basic understanding to do. Well, what's troubling to me with this movement toward what feels like a form of Christian fascism is that it seems to be less about religion and more like government efforts to exert control over certain groups of people. I think that's a very good point. Uh, and there, there are certain, uh, I don't want to say ethics because I don't think of it as ethical, but certain tenets in, uh, in the faith of certain, some people who say this is the way you will feel this is what you will believe rather than you are allowed to feel and or allowed to believe anything you choose, which is what makes America the, I think, the extraordinary uh, um, 
and gives us the opportunity to be the example for people the world over. Um, but that's it, 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 when people do, as you say, when people become on the basis or using as the background or the pretense of a, of a particular faith system, belief system, if they then uh, want to control the thinking and the beliefs of others, I think that that leads to the worst kind of fascistic uh, relationship uh, with the between the, the, those in power and those without power. And the, uh, and we have to watch. We have to watch out for that in this country. I think absolutely. In the uh, last administration, we saw a big uptick in uh, the number of people who were sentenced to death and uh, who uh, were given the death penalty. And then I'm, I'm sure you were profoundly disappointed by the news recent, recently that the Department of Justice wants to pursue the death penalty uh, for the uh, serial, uh, not the serial killer, the mass killer uh, in Buffalo, New York. Is is our progress on eliminating the death penalty continuing forward, or have we taken a step backwards in the last few years? It's uh, We are continuing to make progress, Rich, but given the nature of the Supreme Court today, it's very difficult to expect anything to happen on a national level. Um, Mr. Biden uh, disappointed me terribly in allowing the Justice Department, and Mr. Garland did as well, in allowing the Justice Department to go forward with a a death charge in that uh, the, the case that you just referred to, um, because you know, horrific as that is, um, the practice of a national um, murder, which is what uh, death penalty is, is uh, it cheapens us all and harms us all. I think ethically and morally. Um, so I'm I'm really un, uh, I chair as you may know uh, an organization called Death Penalty Focus and have for now close to 30 years and we've made tremendous progress but we come up against these things every once in a while and what you're talking about today is out of fear and out of anxiety and out of uh, I think a lot of the disorientation that's happened as a result both of the pandemic and the the recent political craziness, um, there's been a real um, a downturn in the logic and a, <laughs> and a, and a really a, a really difficult um, period of where we there, there's there's terrific terrific confusion I think in the country and terrific uh, disorientation and that really results in these kinds of really harmful decisions on the parts of leaders who which then carries down through the through the body politic and uh, uh, disorients people so we have to continue to maintain a uh, clear honest straightforward um, pattern so that we can move people toward the better things in life or toward the more positive or the more humane responses rather than this business of getting a gun and protecting yourself against all the terrible, scary people out there. I think you find that, uh, given the opportunity, you'll find that people aren't so terrible and aren't so scary, but they but they are just as frightened and as confused as uh, are many of the others. That leads to the sort of 
behaviors that we uh, that we regret. You have uh, you have had great success throughout your life at working with people on both sides of the aisle and uh, being willing to uh, to hear both sides of an argument and and also to help people come together. It's an election year, and that of course always amps up the rhetoric on on both sides here. Not that we wouldn't encourage people to vote; we want them to participate, or or democracy fails, but. But is it also a more successful path, perhaps, to have people work on making the change themselves instead of relying on our leaders to do it for us? Well, I think that's quite right. That's that's the basis of the nation here, uh, and, and we're lucky that that's the case. But people forget that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And and the, uh, the I, I think to, to touch on something you just said, this may be. And I've heard it too many times, and I think it becomes it sort of rings false in the ear sometimes. But this may be in the upcoming election, maybe the most important in the history of this country because we have a we have both the opportunity to continue to grow and flourish, and we have the opportunity to lose our democracy and turn it into a semi-fascist or fascist state. And that would be a that would be a very very serious. Um, downturn for the world because we are the leading nation in the world Uh, on this day that we celebrate the life and the work of dr martin luther king jr are are we making progress on that front or or has that uh, too stalled given events of recent years well i think it's i think progress is being made and has been made but the, the what happens is the retrograde forces always want to stop uh any kind of um, positive movement because it frightens them. So you have this business of um, d- now the DEI is the, <laughs> is the is becoming the buzzword or buzz term. Um, but racism continues in our society, and people have to recognize that and find ways to work through it, and not give. Um, give it superiority. Um, classism continues in our society. Um, gender dysphoria issues uh, continue to really create um, havoc because people with very rigid points of view that insist that none of those things, progress in those areas, are threatening to them, um, then begin to campaign in ways that are very destructive and very uh, divisive in our country. You see that. Uh, I don't want to get into to politics too much, but you do see that uh, with this business of um, try, trying to trying to pretend that, um, for example, understanding the, the impact of slavery understanding the impact of separating out people on the basis of race um, has has had a tremendously um, harmful impact on our society. And understanding it, understanding that we went through that process with Native Americans and with Black Americans as slaves, um, uh, that when we, understanding that we went through that process and and found our way through it and ultimately with great struggle found our way to a 
toward a place of real equanimity in the country, real equality in the country. Um, but to study that uh, is important for young people. And instead of realizing how important it is for young people, some people want to close that off and say, no, we can't talk about that. We can't, we can't discuss those issues because it will make people, our children, feel guilty uh, if uh, if they know that, uh, that that black people were were considered less than human or less than 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 the white people, um, so th- there's a there's a great deal of ignorance and a great deal of fear. I think that continues to want to to rise up and be heard when there is real progress being made because they feel that progress is frightening. And we have to find ways to ease those fears and ease those pains and work our ways patiently and quietly and sometimes not so quietly through these um, these um, uh, obstacles that are set up or uh, obstacles to progress that are set up by the retrograde forces in the country. And I, I, I don't know how... Um, I don't know how sometimes we we get so confused and so lost in slogans and in alliances and saying, well, this person says that and I like this person, so that means I've got to do what this person says, um, rather than think through it, think it through myself and remember the training uh, that of my church or my belief system or my parents <clears throat> were offered me when I was young. And instead of sort of remembering that there's a way to do things that are right and a way to do things that are wrong um, and that harm comes to people when you do wrong things and people don't deserve to be treated um, as second-class citizens or as <clears throat> frightening, excuse me, monsters or fearful objects or somehow dangerous creatures because they are they think differently they look different or they act in a manner that's different or their religious or background or race or culture is different from ours that somehow they're a threat that's not true not true there none of these people are threats they are Simply people who see things slightly differently than we do. And if we allow them <clears throat> the opportunity to express themselves without fear, we can learn from that and encourage the growth of our own society. But it's hard for some people to get that. People just want to pull back, build up walls, uh, grab the guns, and ward off what they fear as, is going to somehow harm them when, in fact, it's uh, it's just another way of looking at the issues that we all are presented with. Well, you know, I, I go back to MASH, and I, I think of the fact that uh, you know, over 100 million people watched that finale, and uh, yes, it was entertainment, but there were some messages, and, and you were talking about a lot of issues in that show that certainly people didn't all agree on, but people were able to find the common ground when they watched that show. To me, in 
in talking about the decency and humanity and the way we treat our fellow man. And I have we have we gone so far away from that in the last 40 years uh, that we can't find that common ground again and, and realize, I hope, that the, there are more of us who who see things that way than, than those who are ready to take up arms. Well, I think that's quite right. Uh, you know, uh, people talk about the, the show and how it, how it uh, affected them. And as I think about it, I think that obviously not everybody went to war, not everybody uh, wore a uniform, but everybody understands ultimately the, that something important needs to be done and may, it may take away from their time with their own families. And it may take away from something they love that they have to put aside for a moment in order to help that person in need. I think that was what the show was about. And I think that's why and how uh, people identified with it to the degree they did, that, that they saw that these people went to a situation that they didn't particularly want to be in, but it was important that they do that in our case, that work, that medical work. Um, and I think that I think that somehow registered with people um, in a way that, as you have said earlier in this conversation, continues to be held high by millions of people. Uh, and, and all it was was a little television show. But it spoke to a fundamental value and a fundamental uh, understanding of human connection that I think um, that that I think I, I know because I get letters today <laughs> all the time from people talking about how much the show means to them. Um, that it, it it spoke to a kind of fundamental human need and a fundamental human um, value. That, uh, that that people are, are enriched by and, and, and somehow reaffirms for them their own value and the importance in their own, the, about the things in their own lives. Mike, it's uh, always a highlight of our year when we get to visit with you. Uh, thanks so much, uh, as always, for being with us and uh, all the, the kindness and generosity uh, with your time that you've shared through the years with us here. Well, that's very sweet of you, Rich. I, I always enjoy talking to you. And I have to say I envy you. You say you have the opportunity to speak to uh, Heather Cox Richardson uh, often. Uh, I, I am a huge fan of that woman, and uh, and her. I read her regularly, and am just uh, I, I'm envious of you for having <laughs> the time with, that you do. She'll be on with us in a few weeks. We're looking forward to Oh, by the way, please pass along because I... I know there's a big day coming up in your household later this week. Please wish a very happy early birthday to Shelley. Thank you very much. Um, she will be thrilled to know that you uh, that you sent your regards, and I will be happy to pass that on. Thanks, Mike. Great to talk with you again. Good health and uh, best wishes to you and Shelley and your family. Thanks very much, Rich. Great That's to talk to you. Mike Farrell with us here on Downtown. We'll take a break for a word from Renewal by Anderson. When we come back... We look back at the early days of rock concerts in Southern Maine with author Ford Reiki. The better way to a better window 
Renewal by Anderson. Engineered for excellence. That's what Renewal by Anderson's windows and doors have been called. And here's Troy Pearl to tell us more. Hello, everyone. It's Troy Pearl. Our exclusive replacement windows are the product of decades of innovative engineering and rigorous testing that far exceeds industry standards. I hear you're low maintenance, too. (laughs) That's a big yes. If you're referring to our products and how they compare to vinyl. And energy efficiency? Can you really save me money during the long winter months? Yep. And during the summer months, too, our products can dramatically reduce your heating and cooling costs. Great. What kind of a deal you got for me? Glad you asked. All this month, for every window you buy, you can get another at 40% off. And we'll knock an additional 250 bucks off your entire project. For a free in-home consultation, just go to rbagreatermain.com. The better way to a better window. Renewal by Anderson. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. Put your glad rags on. Join me home. We'll have some fun when the flags go. Back here on downtown. To talk with author Ford Reiki about a fascinating book on the early days of rock concerts in southern Maine. His new book is called A Long, Long Time Ago. And it looks at major rock and roll concerts in Southern Maine from 1955 to 1977. Our conversation with Ford Reiki on downtown. First of all, I absolutely love the book. What a what a wonderful ride for anybody who is a fan of music, obviously, but history, radio, uh, you name it. You've you've combined all of those things into this terrific book. Yeah, many, many thanks, Rich. It's uh, fun to talk to you about the book. It is, even though I wrote it, I'm so acquainted with the subject matter, when I flip through it, it still it still amazes me that, uh, that we had that much talent, that, that parade of talent that went through here in that short period of time. And as you point out, uh, probably none of this would have happened had it not been for something completely unrelated to music, the main turnpike. Uh, complete. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was outside of their specific intentions. The the turnpike was built uh, as an economic development tool because uh, Maine's uh, declining farm uh, farm in, uh, economy had declined, and so this really, I guess, was an outgrowth of that. Well, as you began to do research on the book, one of the things that you found is that uh, it was a little tough to get information because even the venues didn't really keep much in the way of historical records. That shocked me. I started I, I, I started thinking this was the Southern Maine concerts were uh, predominantly in Portland, which I, I quickly learned was wrong. Um, but I thought I'd be able to go into these venues like the Portland Expo or you know, later the, as I got further into this, the, the two uh, big venues in Lewiston, which was the Armory and City, Lewiston City Hall, and then the big venues in Old Orchard Beach. I thought I'd going to be able to go into those places and find a file cabinet full of their posters. And not one of those venues, including, surprisingly, the Cumberland County Civic Center, not one of those venues even has a list of their concerts. Let's talk about the time frame. You choose 1955, obviously, the turnpike of what we generally regard also as the start of the rock and roll era. And then 1977, uh, the arrival of the Cumberland County Civic Center, and that really changed things. It did. Um, the beginning, uh, the 1955 was a very, uh, turned out to be a, a very easy decision for the start of the book. It's when the turnpike uh, connected through Lewiston that it previously um as of 1947, 
uh, it had uh, connected Kittery to Portland. And then in 55, it connected on through. And that's really what put this quarter of a million people and seven college campuses all in one market for uh, concert promoters. Um, but 55 also coincided with the very first recognized as the very first rock band of all time, Bill Haley and the Comet. And while their song, Rock Around the Clock, which was the first rock and roll song ever, uh, first one ever to make number one on the Billboard National Hit List, while it was still number one, they played uh, at Old Orchard Beach in Maine. And that's a remarkable story, too, to, to kick off the book, that uh, here you are with the pioneers of rock and roll really kicking off rock concerts in Maine, August of 1955 at the pier in Old Orchard Beach. And as you point out in the book, there have been performers coming there and coming to southern Maine venues for years. But uh, as rock arrived, it also created a whole new audience uh, of young people who were not exactly concert goers before this time. That's correct. I grew up in I grew up in Southern Maine, and so I was certainly aware that um, in the the big band era, that Count Basie and Count Basie and Tommy Dorsey and Benny Goodman, all those big band names, had come to Old Orchard. But I had I it had somehow eluded me that uh, once rock and roll started, it was the same the same wave uh, of, of talent was coming through. It re- actually, with the same promoter, primarily it was a promoter named Bobby Selberg from Portland. And then there were two teachers in Bitterford who also were promoters down there. But every weekend in the summer, it was a big name, big rock and roll name playing there in the in the early and late 60s. Bobby Selberg is such a, a hero in this book, and he's got such a unique story in that this was far from his full-time job. Um, that holds true for all of the college, all of the concert promoters in this book up until uh, the mid-70s. Uh, Bobby Selberg uh, was for 35 years re- worked on the shipping dock at Sears Roebuck in Portland, and he did these concerts at the Portland Expo, Portland City Hall, and the uh, the Palace in Old Orchard Beach as a kind of a hobby. Never made, never you know, he probably broke even, but it was never enough money for it to be his job. And the same holds true for the other concert promoters in Old Orchard Beach, and then the folks who ran Arabus, which was a big. Um, a big uh, fashion store and uh, drug paraphernalia store in the 70s, kind of a trendsetter in southern Maine. Those guys were concert promoters uh, in 69 and 70 and 71, and they didn't make any money out of it. It was really a public service. Well, there are so many wonderful stories in the book. Uh, one of the first names that jumped out at me was uh, from 1958, Alan Freed and the uh, the parade of rock stars that made their way to Maine. But But Alan Freed never made it. Can you share that story? Yeah, Alan Free. So the, 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 there were two big rock and roll tours that, that that went across the nation and and really introduced the nation to rock and roll. Alan Freed in the late fifties, and then Dick Clark in the early sixties. They both came to Maine. Um, Alan Freed he was setting the Big Beat um, tour to Lewiston again. Fifty eight is really early in rock and roll, and playing in Lewiston was Jerry Lee Lewis. Buddy Holly and the Crickets, Chuck Berry, Frankie Lyman, Danny and the Juniors. I mean, they had song hits that we all know, and they're a big part of rock and roll history. Um, he was supposed to play, I'm sorry, was supposed to introduce uh, this parade of talent in Lewiston, uh, but he uh, had lost his job uh, two or three days before because he had, uh, the uh, crowd in Bo- at Boston Garden had gotten so excited uh, that they caused what was characterized as a riot, 
the mayor of Boston said there would be no more rock and roll <laughs> concerts as long as he was in control. Uh, and they got canceled at a few other venues, but the next act, the next place where they actually performed is a few days later in Lewiston. And was it the mayor of Lewiston who said, well, listen, we're not Boston. We know how to handle this. Uh, yeah, he did say that, and they did handle it okay there, but things did did melt down at other concerts in Lewiston over the course of time. Uh, as you look through the book and see all these incredible names, it's also interesting to note how many came to Maine before they were really well-known on a national basis, probably none bigger than the Supremes. That's true. And if you think about what these people were doing, they were these were young people, and they were basically, if they were good enough to get on tour, they were basically on a conveyor belt to go to as many good-sized venues as they could in the whole country as quickly as possible. Um, the Supremes were on that Dick Clark caravan um, of sound uh, tour, which came came to Maine in '64, you know, and that included the Dixie Cups and the Rip Chords and Gene Pitney and a number of big names. Um, but the Supremes were on there as one of the 14 acts, but they had they didn't have a name. They weren't even showing up in local advertising. <laughs> a month later, they had this, they had a hit song, and they right after that became the headliner for the for Dick Clark um, Dick Clark's tour after they left Maine. We're talking another with- group. Oh, go ahead. Another group, that, another group that found fame um, that was in Maine before they found fame, and then of course afterwards as well as the Beach Boys. But they were here in 1963. They played in Old Orchard Beach in 1963. They showed up <laughs> in a station wagon and a Jaguar, and they had the whole band and their manager and all their equipment uh, stuffed in those two vehicles, towing a, uh, a U-Haul trailer. And they were just making the rounds. And they, you know, the 62 is really early for the Beach Boys. We're talking with Ford Reiki about his book a long, long time ago, Major Rock and Roll Concerts in Southern Maine, 1955 to 1977. One of the things that makes this book such a joy to look through are, are the incredible pictures, whether it's posters, uh, ticket stubs, or those rare concert photos. Uh, how much work was it uh, finding people who still had these pieces of memorabilia they were willing to share for the book? Uh, well, luckily, this is a topic that, has, that incites passion in people, and so people who were there in the era have, in, in many cases, kept their kept their materials. So I've got every every page of the book is is main material, although it's obviously national and internationally known names. Everything in the book is 100% main based, as you as you know. So there's 600 images in the book. It's a 200 page book, and uh, I would like to say that a long, long time ago is. Uh, is 100% of the proceeds is being donated to the Maine Historical Society. Uh, but I was able to tie, I've met up with uh, old hippies who were fans of these concerts, <laughs> uh, some of the old concert promoters or their families, the AM DJs, who played a huge role in these concerts because they would promote them and then actually introduce them on stage. Um, and some of the operators of the venues I've been able to talk to as well. Uh, you mentioned the AM radio guys, that they were a big part of this, but also local bands are an important part of this story And uh, uh, as opening acts, but sometimes even stepping to the front when the uh, the big-time acts chose not to show up. Uh, that did happen. So it was in the, in the early and mid-'60s, these bands that were touring were very low budget, and so they would, they would uh, get booked to play uh, at a facility that might be 2,000, 3,000, maybe 5,000 people. 
Um, but they were traveling so lightly, they didn't have a backup band. Uh, and so they would call ahead and say, listen, get a local high school band to get some popular local band to open for us. So that was very common. I have a lot in the book about the local band, loads of high school bands or, you know, garage bands, particularly from the Lewiston area. Uh, and uh, sometimes they would have to, they would think they're going to be the opening act, and then it would turn out that the birds or the guests who, uh, or would, would fail to show up completely, and these poor young people would end up um, <laughs> spending, the whole, spending the whole night trying to entertain a crowd who thought they were going to be seeing a big name. We have uh, we... Hendricks in oh. Lewiston, which I think might be the most, if you ask me the most significant mm. concert in Southern Maine, it would probably be Jimi Hendrix playing in 1968 at the Lewiston Armory. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was uh, supposed to be bringing. Uh, a backup band. Another, uh, it was a band from England called Soft Machine, uh, and they had kind of a cult following. But when they crossed the border on tour from England, I mean, from Canada into Maine, uh, they had a drug violation and they got detained. And so Jimi Hendrix showed up in Lewiston with um, without a backup band and without half of his amplifiers. And they had to get a local band called Terry and the Telstars uh, to to uh, open for Jimi Hendrix, and Jimi Hendrix had to borrow their uh, Fender amps, which were microscopic compared to what Jimmy Hendrix normally played with on stage. There were some interesting incidents along the way. We, we've talked to so many musicians on our show who were part of this story as well. I, I wish I had known the story of what happened with Herman's Hermits when we had Peter Noon on. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure he would remember that very fondly, but it was it's uh, it's an interesting story. He was playing, I think it was in 1966 in Portland. Uh, to a, you know, it was at the Portland Expo. There were probably a couple thousand or maybe three thousand people there, and they were three songs into their set uh, when a fan uh, in the front part of the crowd uh, had a full cup of Pepsi and threw it on stage and hit him head on, and uh, he got so mad he stormed off the stage uh, and they left. The whole the band followed him off, and that was the end of the night. Also, a pretty wild time when uh, Freddie Mercury and Queen came to the state. Uh, yeah, that that was as I alluded to a moment ago. Lewiston had uh, had some some really signature events with with these early rock and roll concerts. Big names came to Lewiston, partly because Lewiston had bigger venues than anything in Maine. Uh, early on, uh, they could they could see five thousand people at the uh, Lewis at uh, at the, the Lewiston Armory. And then uh, after that got shut down because of bad behavior, the, the concert promoters went over to the Central Maine Youth Center where they could seat 6,500 people by putting plywood down on the ice of the hockey rink. Uh, so Queen came to play. Um, Queen came to play at the um, at the Lewiston Armory uh, in '74, '75. I think it was '75. Uh, they they blew into town in a white limousine and went to the local FM radio station and just walked into the station and kind of commandeered the show without any without any forewarning. And then at the, the night of the concert, uh, there was what the police characterized as a riot. I think there were 25 arrests. Um, they uh, fished some kid out of a, a basketball hoop. He'd been stuffed in the basketball hoop. <laughs> and uh, two people were having sex in an all-glass phone booth. <laughs> and that um, that was kind of the last straw for the for the city council. They they really started shutting down on the concerts after that. Where, where was that white limousine when our friend Alice Cooper came to Portland? That's exactly right. Alice Cooper showed up earlier, <clears throat> a few years earlier, and he played for the um, 
for University of Southern Maine. And I will say these these um, colleges played a huge role in bringing these bands to Maine. Uh, University of Southern Maine, of course, I went to Orono. I was the same deal up there. Um, but colleges attracted um, these um, many, many of these big names. Uh, so uh, Alice Cooper showed up at the airport, I think it was 71 or 72, pretty early in the game, uh, and hit, uh, to play for University of Southern Maine. This concert was being put on by student promoters uh, who uh, didn't have much in the way of resources. And uh, the, it was a rider in Alice's, Alice Cooper's um, standard performance contract that they get picked up by white limousines at whatever airport they're flying into. And so in this case, a black limousine showed up, and Alice Cooper would not even, would not even get in it. So the two students had to take their Volkswagen bug out to uh, – out to the Portland Jetport, which was just at the airport at the time, and convinced them that if they didn't, uh, if they didn't get in the limo, they're going to be riding something with a lot less attractive, <laughs> even though it was a black limo. Well, we're lucky you're here to tell the tale, Ford. All that, in spite of uh, the efforts, the backhanded efforts of the young bloods, who nearly cost you your life. <laughs> yeah, that was um, like. Uh, like a lot of people, I was uh, I, one. One way that I got punished as a teenager in that period was for me to lose my driving privileges, and, and uh, so I uh, the, the young bloods uh, showed up in Portland. That was I think there were fifteen hundred people at the state theater for that concert, and it was a big deal. When these bands were coming to, to to towns like I'm sure it was the same in the Bangor area and Waterville, but when they were coming to southern Maine towns back in the late sixties and seventies, it was front page news. Everybody knew about it. So there was a concert at the State Theater, and the young blood flew into town an hour and a half late. So, you know, we were high school students, and the concert started an hour and a half late, and we got home an hour and a half late, and I got grounded. And uh, <laughs> long story, I, got, I think I got grounded for a couple of weeks, but long story short, the, the day I got my car keys back, or my parents' car keys back, uh, I went out, and, and two hours later, uh, I was in a car accident, drove off a bridge in, in into the Presumpska River is a, uh, one of those amazing car accidents, amazing anyone could live through it. But uh, I said in the book that I wouldn't have gotten grounded if the young bread hadn't, hadn't been, been showing up late that night, and I wouldn't have come so near death. Man, oh man. we're uh, talking with Ford Reiki. His book is called The Long, Long Time Ago. So many great photos in the book. And as you explain, uh, these photos largely coming from people who were in the audience, whoever it was that took uh, photographs of the Ike and Tina Turner show, did a fantastic job. Those are uh, some of the best photos in the entire book. Yeah, that's true. These photos were um, cameras early on. Cameras were not tightly restricted. But over the course of time, promoters just wouldn't let it happen because they wanted to control all the photography and all the publicity. Actually, when America, when the band America played, um, their contract writer had a requirement that any photos uh, had to be for pub- that were taken for publicity purposes had to be taken with a Nikon camera only. <laughs> but uh, people people smuggled cameras in. They also smuggled in reel-to-reel tape recorders. I have access to a number of. Of those were a fellow named Joe Maloney, who was a local who recorded those things, and people kept them because these are important parts of, of our lives. And um, luckily, I got my hands on a bunch of great scrapbooks. Uh, people up north still talk about the fact that Bruce Springsteen played at Little Ricker College earlier in his career, but he also made an appearance at the Central Maine Youth Center in early 1977. Uh, he did. Uh, you know, these, and again, these, these 
some of these acts ended up being monster names, but they but when they earlier in their career they'd play play anywhere they where they could put together five hundred or a thousand people. But Springsteen played later uh, in the nineteen seventies in Lewiston, Maine, and uh, he played uh, at the Central Maine Youth Center, which was a hockey arena, and, and you know, and he his dressing room uh, by by this time he was pretty famous. His dressing room was the stinky uh, locker room, and his <laughs> band. Uh, his uh, road manager freaked out when he saw it. He made the promoters to a couple of young guys uh, go out and get curtains and paint and, and a rug at some discount store to try to dress the locker room <laughs> up for Springsteen. So many wonderful stories uh, in the book, so many great pictures as well, and memories. Uh, it was just an absolute delight to read through the whole thing. And we talked about the Cumberland County Civic Center and how that uh, helped mark uh, the end of, of this journey. Uh, what changed? Was it, uh, it wasn't just the size of the venue, but also the arrival on the scene of more regional and national promoters? Yeah, um, you're, you're, you are correct. So the we, we talked about the uh, the uh, Queen concert in Lewiston uh, in '75. Lewiston was we, we had the big venues for Southern Maine uh, up before the Civic Center, but the, Lewiston just shut down concerts. They'd had it, so you were running out. Coincidentally, running out of the access to the big venues, and then the Civic Center opened in Portland in 1977. It could seat almost twice as many people as as the biggest venue in Southern Maine. It could seat almost 10,000 people. When it opened, it was characterized in New England as a rock palace. There was nothing else in northern New England that large. It was, um, and so we really got on. It really got on the map for the big tours. But things, and, and, and when that happened, it shut down the other venues. Effectively, shut all of them down, uh, and brought so much more big name talent to Maine. The year before the Civic Center opened, there were sixteen significant concerts in Southern Maine. The year it opened, there were 45. Wow. So basically, the, the, the names the names elevated in stature and the, and the number of concerts tripled. Um, and it coincided with the end of that kind of that quaint era where you had the local concert promoters doing it as a public service. Um, the local tickets, you no more paper tickets. Electronic ticketing came in the same year. And so you're buying that from national concert um, ticket sales outfits instead of your local record store. And it just coincidentally was it was an era when a lot changed. And so it became a logical spot for me to end the book. Now, now that the book is out and you were telling me it's sold very well, over a thousand copies sold already. Are you finding that uh, you're hearing from even more people who have got uh, pictures, tickets, posters and the like to share? Um, so, so good and bad news on that. I was the bad news is I was hoping to round up more. Um, so I guess the good news is it means like I, I covered things pretty well with the first printing. Uh, I only came across one concert, um, and one poster that I didn't have in the book. We're actually doing a second printing. We only have been selling for a month and we've sold 1100 copies, which by, for, for a main history book is quite, is really quite surprising. So we're doing another, a second printing, uh, and arranging that right now. Well, it's a wonderful book. Anybody who loves music, the history of Maine, uh, will absolutely enjoy every moment they spend with a long, long time ago, major rock and roll concerts in southern Maine. Ford, thanks so much for visiting with us today. Wish you continued success with the book and uh, the great work it's doing for the Maine Historical Society. And thanks again for visiting. Yeah, thank you so much. I enjoyed our talk. Ford Reiki talking about his new book a long, long time ago, a look at the history of rock concerts in Southern Maine, 1955 to 1977. Our thanks to Ford. Thanks, as always, 
to the great Mike Farrell. And thanks to you for joining us on Downtown. Brought to you every week by Renewal by Anderson, the better way to a better window. Downtown produced by Kerry Haskell. I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.